0: Episode 80 of the State of the Old Republic podcast was originally recorded on June 5th, 2018. It's the State of the Old Republic podcast. Have you ever been in the middle of a war zone and thought, "Can this thing drag on any longer? I've got other war zones to go to and other players to kill." Bioware is making changes to make matches shorter. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Bioware is implementing their version of Swipe Right for War Zones and Galactic Starfighter. Of all the gin joints and all the cantinas and all the galaxy, she had to walk into mine. You broke my heart, Thanavesh. Ah well, we'll always have Terrace. My story project continues this week. And with that, it's time to make the jump to lightspeed and check out the State of the Old Republic. Welcome to Episode 80 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and as you heard in the opening, I have another great show lined up for you today. As always, let's start with some announcements for the Old Republic. BioWare has updated their calendar of events for the month of June. Here's what's happening this month in the Old Republic. The Nightlife event is currently underway and will run until June 30th. The Relics of the Gree event will run from June 12th through the 18th. And Bounty Contract Week returns on June 26th and will end on July 2nd. And that gets us into July and the heart of the Summer of Swotor, where major changes to war zones were announced earlier this week. With that, let's slice the holonet and get to the news. Now before I get into all the planned changes, it's important to understand the goals that BioWare has set out to achieve, and there are two of them. First is to shorten the average time of war zones to be around 12 minutes. The second is to fix war zones that are exploitable due to environment hacking. With that in mind, let's take a look at the proposed changes, which we now know will be part of game update 5.9.2. First up is the Void Star. To help keep matches at or under 12 minutes, as well as to make them more interesting, BioWare is making changes that will give the offense a much better chance of completing the objectives. According to Eric Musco, we want to make the Void Star more about a race to complete the objectives as opposed to a map which often ends in a stalemate. Less stalemates will shorten the overall time of the map. To make the Warzone more attacker-friendly, Doors now take six seconds to arm, down from eight. Defenders now have 15 seconds to to disarm door bombs, down from 20. Extending the bridges and lowering the shields now takes six seconds to channel, down from eight. Force fields are now blocking the reactor room doors until the bridges are extended. There will now be a force field in front of that door until the bridge is lowered. Once the bridge is lowered, you can begin planting on the door. You can still get across the gap to get in position to plant the bomb faster, but you can no longer bypass lowering the bridge. Characters who hack their way into the last two rooms of the war zone before the bridge has been extended or the force field is down will be killed. Characters who attempt to hack through the the hangar doors to place a charge from inside the hallway will die. Apologies in advance to my European friends, but the Void Star is like the soccer, or should I say football, of war zones it's always been very defensive in nature and i think it's fair to say that we've all been in those one nil matches where an attacking team gets one door and that's it the rest of the time is just spent killing people and preventing the other team from getting a door even worse are those nil nil matches where no one caps a door and it's just one giant slugfest where the team with the most kills wins i.e the dreaded stalemate if these changes succeed in making the Void Star a more offensive oriented war zone, then I'm all for it. I like this war zone a lot, but I hate it when the whole match is just spent in that first area and no one is able to get a door, let alone get two doors, or even make it to the reactor. The ancient hypergate war zone is also getting some changes. The primary issue here is that running orbs is somewhat meaningless. According to Eric Musco, We want running orbs to be more impactful to the Warzone's gameplay with the goal of shortening each map. Orbs now score more points up from six. Orbs score, orbs scores ramp up each round of the game. Round one, 12 points per orb. Round two, 15. Round three, 18 points. Round four, 21. Round five, 24. And round six and up, 27 points per orb delivered. Player corral force fields have had their uptime reduced. The force field is now down for 10 seconds and up for 15 seconds, previously 30 seconds. The ancient hypergate is one of my favorite war zones. This is probably the first war zone where I actually paid attention to the objectives and tried to achieve them on a regular basis. I love running back orbs, although I always felt like I was wasting my time and perhaps even hurting the team by doing that rather than focusing on killing members of the other team or trying to take an opposing team's pylon. With this change, I now feel like I can really help the team by trying to get the orbs and run them back to my pylon. I'll be curious to see if this changes the strategy of the warzone. Will there be less fighting around the pylons and more fighting in the middle areas as teams focus on getting those orbs? The Alderon Civil War Warzone is getting a small change to help speed things up. Turrets will now damage ships for 12 damage per tick, up from 10. Bioware is also fixing an exploit where any character who tries to hack inside of a capture terminal will now die when they try to do so. This is a change that doesn't affect strategy at all and is clearly designed to adjust, to just shorten the length of each match. And I'm not even sure how well it will accomplish that. I'm guessing this is one of the war zones that was already close to hitting the 12 minute target. The Yavin 4 Warzone is getting some changes that will help further differentiate the map from the Alderaan Civil War, along with shortening the match time. Teams will now start with 500 points, down from 600. When players die, they reduce their team score by 2, this is up from 0. And characters exploiting by hacking inside of the capture terminals will now die when they do so. When this change was announced, there was some concern that players would now be able to win the war zone simply by capturing a single turret and then focusing on killing members of the opposing team. Eric allayed those fears when he said, Based on the way that it is balanced in the changes above, holding two points is absolutely the way you need to win. Example, if one team is holding two points, the other is holding one and trying to farm kills, the team with two points will still win. Kills being worth points will help accelerate the map and to differentiate it, differentiate it from Alderon, It is not set up as a new strategy to win. Based on our data, killing players is still not going to be a viable strategy to win this war zone. The Navarre Coast is getting a small change, although it's more of a fix rather than an attempt to shorten the length of each match. Any characters who leave the starting area prior to the match starting will die, and players who will no longer be able to cap a point outside of the intended 20 meter range we're looking at you phase walk if you're wondering about the two hutball war zones and arenas well they're in a category all of their own Bioware has big changes planned around making the matches more competitive and interesting overall apparently kicking the hut ball isn't the only thing Garada the Hutt doesn't like About the game and that slimy piece of worm-ridden filth has reached out to the Bioware Rules Committee demanding change. According to Bioware, we have some concerns about the dominance of classes with movement abilities in Hutball. The proposed changes will help encourage more team play in the war zone. We also want to create more situations for counterplay and competition in Hutball while ensuring all players are rewarded for their efforts. Carrying the Hut Ball now applies Hinder to the character. Hinder prevents the use of high mobility actions such as Force Charge, Force Speed, Scamper, and more. Hinder will apply to Sage and Sork pulls as well as Translocate and Transpose, meaning those abilities will not work on hindered targets. Due to the hinder changes above, players holding the Hut Ball will now move at 80% movement speed up from 67. Players can no longer catch the Hut Ball while stunned, This creates more opportunities for counterplay, such as intercepting passes intended for a target you stun. They are adding attacker points for catching a pass from a friendly target. Currently, the thrower of the hut ball receives 500 points, but not the receiver. We will increase the receiver to gain 250 points. We would also like a touchdown pass to award both players equally. Currently, the thrower gets 500 more points. Here's what the new breakdown would look like. The thrower will get a total of 2,750 attacker points, 500 attacker points from completing the pass successfully, and 2,250 attacker points for throwing a scoring pass. The receiver will also get 2,750 attacker points total, 250 attacker points from receiving a friendly pass, and 2,500 attacker points for possessing the ball for a score. We know these changes will be pretty substantial in affecting how you play hutball. Before we make these adjustments, we want to know your thoughts. We are getting your feedback early to see what changes we should or should not make. Those are some pretty big changes to hutball, and after reading them, I'm pretty sure I'm still going to hate hutball. In the arena of arenas... Did you really just say that? Let it go, Theron. For arenas, Bioware is concerned about players exploiting the environment to keep themselves from dying. While one could argue that keeping oneself from dying is an inherent Sith ability, it's getting fixed nonetheless. According to Eric, there are quite a few places where players can exploit to prevent themselves from dying. We plan to address them and implement ways to penalize those players. Additionally, we wanted to take another look at how the acid mechanics work at the end of arena matches to see if we can improve that experience for stalemates. Here are our thoughts. Characters who hack their way into places they shouldn't be, such as outside the arena or in the ground, will die. Currently, acid causes characters to take 10% of their max health in damage every second, and it prevents stealth and all healing. Acid will now work as follows. Characters will take 1% of their max health and damage every second and reduce all healing done and received by 2% per stack. Characters affected by acid will begin with 1 stack and gain 1 stack per second, and acid will still inhibit health. So in other words, players begin taking 1% of their maximum health every second. This effect does not stack. It is always 1%. You receive a 2% penalty to healing every second. This does stack. It increases by 2% per stack. What this means is that players, as players fight during the arena end phase, healing will continue to become less effective over time until it does nothing. That penalty plus the constant 1% damage will apply more and more kill pressure to the remaining players. This will mean the very end of an arena match will now get progressively more dangerous. This gives more time for players to fight each other and counterplay before their inevitable acid death. This should also address cases where stealth characters in particular can just CC and run away to win a match. Warzone changes are just one way that Bioware is attempting to improve the quality of matches. The other is coming in the form of an improvement to their matchmaking system. To that end, all Warzone and Starfighter queues are now cross faction. The unranked Warzone queue will now always prioritize war zones over Arenas. An Arena match will only pop if there are not enough players to populate a full Warzone match at a time. Matchmaking will never place more than two tanks or healers on the same team in a Warzone or one tank or healer for an Arena. Matchmaking will always do its best to balance the amount of tanks and healers on each team. If there are two healers, each team will receive one if possible. The same is true of tanks. In situations where there are an odd number of tanks and healers, matchmaking will do its best to place the combined number of tanks and healers evenly. For example, there are three healers and one tank. Matchmaking will attempt to make the team's two healers versus one tank, one healer. Pre-made groups in unranked arenas can only have a max of one tank and one healer. Matchmaking will more strongly take player skill into account when making teams. Pre-made groups queuing for ranked and unranked war zones and GSF will now have their matchmaking skill based on the highest rated member, not the team's average rating. Galactic Starfighter matchmaking has been improved to better account for player experience along with their currently selected ship loadout. All of these changes have the goal of making Warzone and Starfighter matches pop more regularly, and be more balanced overall. Those are some pretty big changes right there, and about to be gone are the days of stacking healers and having these prolonged matches that never end. Now, if you're worried about queuing in a group of four and getting split up, here's what Eric said about that. We will never split up a group. If you queue as four players in a group, you will all be on the same team. However, keep in mind, you could no longer queue if you had two healers in your group, you can only queue with a max of one tank and one healer in a four-man group. Regarding trying to get two four-man groups to be on the same team, Eric said if you are trying to queue sync two four-man groups together to be on the same team, it is always possible they end up against each other as opposed to on the same team, especially with the new factors in 5.9.2, such as improved matchmaking and cross-faction. In case you're wondering if they're implementing some fancy new tech to track people's skill, according to Eric Musco, they've been doing this since launch. He said that, Players have always had a rating behind the scenes. I'm hesitant to say rating, since this isn't the same thing as your ranked score, but it's the easiest way to explain it. This is more of a way that we approximate player skills solely for the purposes of matchmaking. This is also the reason we don't expose this information, since it's not really a rating. In 5.9.2, we are making optimizations in how we use this information along with things like role, spec, gear, and more to try and create the most balanced teams we can. Unlike previous game updates, BioWare did mention that they are planning to release the PvP changes and I believe the Rishi Stronghold on the public test server. There's no date as to when the PTS will go up, but I believe I heard Keith mention that they were targeting late June. I'm pretty sure the PTS is available to all players, including those that are preferred or free to play, but don't quote me on that. The PTS is absolutely a great way to test the content and provide feedback to Bioware on the changes before they go live. And I encourage everyone to download the PTS and copy your characters over when it becomes available and get a good look at these Warzone changes before they go live. Bioware said the summer Swo Tour was going to be focused around PvP, and they weren't joking. All of these changes were mentioned in the summer roadmap. The only thing we haven't gotten any details on are the new arena, the Rishi Stronghold, and the new Hutball Warzone. You know, the good stuff. I now want to switch gears from PvP and talk about PvE, specifically my story project. For those that are just tuning in for the first time, what I'm attempting to do is play all eight classes and move them through their class, companion, and planetary stories all at once. The goal is to find a playthrough that works chronologically. I'm not going for canon. I've completed the prologue and Act 1 for everyone. Last week I covered Balmora for the Republic, and this week I'll cover Terrace for the Empire. Before I begin, I want to warn you that I'm going to get into spoilers and plot points and play some clips. So if you haven't done all of the class stories or other stories that are part of the 1-50 to 50 experience, this is your cue to bow out. As a reminder, I'm going to refer to the characters as he or she based on the gender I chose for my characters. It just makes it easier to talk about them. There is absolutely nothing about the story that suggests you must choose a specific gender for a class Although there are certain story moments that you can only experience as male or female, some of them quite good. Just like the Republic heroes, all of the Imperial hero- heroes have off-world actions that serve to transition from Act 1 to Act 2. Before we head to Terrace, let me set up the Imperial side of the story for you. Darth Vengean, a member of the Dark Council and Darth Barriss' master, wants war. Barriss has tasked his apprentice, the Sith Warrior, with defeating the War Trust, a conglomerate of some of the Republic's greatest military minds, with the ultimate goal of having the Treaty of Coruscant fall apart. Despite thwarting her master's nefarious plans, the Sith Inquisitor is still not welcome among the ranks of the Sith's elite. Darthanaton, Zash's former master, wants the Inquisitor dead. The Inquisitor has learned a Force Walk ability that allows her to bind Force Ghosts and harness their power. She is now on a quest to amass enough power to defeat Thanaton once and for all. Having won the Great Hunt, the Bounty Hunter is now part of the profession's elite. She proved herself to Mandalore and became an honorary Mandalorian. The Bounty Hunter is now going after targets from the Blacklist, an exclusive group of the most prestigious bounties in the entire galaxy. The Imperial agent has been tasked with infiltrating the Strategic Information Services, a.k.a. the SIS, as a double agent. Posing as a disgruntled Cypher agent looking to defect from the Empire, the agent earns a spot on an SIS team led by a man named Arden Koth. Due to the agent's brazen actions dismantling the Eagle's network and learning the truth about Darth Jadis, Imperial intelligence had Cypher 9 brainwashed. The SIS knows this secret and now controls Cypher 9's every move. So that's the story thus far for the Empire. Let's now head to the Rat infested world of Terrace where the Empire hopes to end the Republic's reconstruction efforts and drive them off the world for good. The recommended order for Terrace is Imperial Agent, Bounty Hunter, Sith Inquisitor, and Sith Warrior. As complicated as Balmora was for the Republic, Terrace is much less convoluted for the Empire. I didn't find anything in the class stories that suggested a specific order of play, and I think you're fine to go in any order that you like. Even though there isn't a specific order of play, there are some nice callbacks and tie-ins to the greater story happening on Terrace. The Imperial Agent story ties in with the Jedi Knights. The Agent is on Terrace chasing down a rogue Jedi who is after a high-tech piece of technology called the Ultrawave Transmitter. This mysterious device can help her raise a Rackgul army. The creator of this technology is the Republic scientist Nason Gadera.
1: This laboratory belonged to a man named Nason Gadera,
0: Utterly brilliant. Invented everything from durable plaster foam to the, the death mark
1: laser. But his relationship with the Republic is... Rocky. By the time we
0: captured this sector, he was already gone. I came to catalog the contents of his lab. And I wasn't the first. If you recall, Nason Godera was the scientist that the Jedi Knight rescued when he was on Terrace. Godera was being tracked by Watcher 1 of Imperial Intelligence. The best part of Terrace is the planetary story. The order in which it happens doesn't matter a whole lot. But like most planetary stories, it's better to do it last, as it wraps up events that are present when each class story starts. While anyone can do the planetary story, it's best suited for the Sith Inquisitor and the Sith Warrior. This is because it involves one of the most entertaining rivalries that you'll find in the game.
1: I'm back, Master. I slaughtered every one of them, then crushed their artillery. A fascinating the story. Unfortunately, the true destroyer of the artillery stands before you. Thanavesh, meet the latest addition to my circle. Hunt in my territory again and you're dead. Rage
0: really brings out your beauty.
1: I'm immune to your sickening charms.
0: Save your anger, Thana. Despite her utter disdain for us, Thanavesh is one of the most enjoyable characters you'll find in the game. Throughout most of the story, you work together by working apart as you try and outdo each other at every turn. As you might expect, we often get the better of her, like this moment where Thana gets captured.
1: That'll send those beasts running off planet. Now, why don't you come over here? Let me out. I'm sure there's some way I can make it up to you.
0: Stay in there a while. Think about that attitude of yours.
1: I'm going to escape. And when I do, you better be long gone.
0: At the end of the story, you have the option to kill Thana. And although we never see her again, to paraphrase Vitiate, I find the galaxy more interesting with her in it. Rather than strike her down, I prefer to go our separate ways and look back on our time together fondly and think we'll always have Terrace.
1: Anyway, this place is about to explode. Much as I'd like to see you disintegrated, I suggest you run. Or stay. See if I care.
0: The galaxy's a big place. Try not to get killed.
1: I can take care of myself just fine.
0: Another great thing about the planetary story is that it ties in with the Republic bonus series from Terrace. If you recall, our heroes helped out a lovely scientist named Mola Haxtor.
1: This is not a grooming behavior. That's tool use at the very least. I know that,
0: and you know that. I'm just saying neither the university nor the garrison... Never mind, we have company.
1: Hi, I'm Mola Haxtor. This is Professor Vral. We're applied xenozoologists. Could you settle something for us?
0: Mola returns in the Imperial story, only she's a prisoner of Darth Melkin, and he's using her to get information on the Rat The story goes one step further as the Empire learns about the force-wielding neck ghouls that the Republic discovered.
1: While you poisoned the sewers, I was busy slaughtering rat ghouls. One of them hit back without touching me. It was using the Force. Tell us what you know about these force-using creatures. They're called neck ghouls. They're sentient, proficient with the Force. A whole colony of them lives in the rundown reactor.
0: You know the penalty for lying, Mola.
1: It's true. Master Sulan's with the Nekuls now, teaching them the ways of the Light Side. Sulan. I know the name. Idealistic Jedi. Powerful, but foolish. If he raises these Neckhuls against us, we could
0: have trouble. Sulan will not interfere with the Empire's plans. Good. Look for him in this reactor Mola mentioned. If he's there...
1: Remove him. This job requires true mastery of the dark side. Leave it to me. First one to overload the reactor core gets to watch the net ghouls fry.
0: The Imperial story brings that thread to a nice conclusion. And speaking of conclusions, that's going to do it for Terrace. Just to recap, there's no real order of play here, and the planetary story is one of the best in the game. I recommend doing it on the Warrior or the Inquisitor. Next up is Quesh. Both the Empire and Republic are headed to this toxic world. I'll cover that next time. It's a short planet, but it's also one where the Imperial and Republic planetary stories collide. The order in which things happen will matter. So that's going to wrap it up for today. Let me cut in the sublight engines and cue the music and congratulate you on surviving another half hour listening to episode 80 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and I thank you for tuning in. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and Buzzsprout. You can also listen to the show directly from the show site, which is sotorpodcast.com, and there is an RSS feed where you can subscribe to the podcast directly. If you have a question for the show, you can email me at sotorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet your questions to at sotorpodcast or send me a direct message. And be sure to follow me on Twitter to get the latest information on the show. Look for episode 81. Probably around June 26th, I probably won't be able to do a show next week. Till then, remember the Sith Code. Cake is alive.